Welcome to the Yahoo Finance Presents podcast. I'm Alexis Christophorus. Did you ever dream of owning a stake in a professional sports team? Well, now you can, thanks to the Global Sports Financial Exchange. It is billed as the world's first sports stock market, and it lets fans invest in their favorite teams. And I am joined now by the exchange's CEO, Zach Ward. It is great to have you on the podcast, Zach. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Okay, first off, I think this is very intriguing. People want to learn more. Just explain the mechanics. How does this work? You buy shares in your favorite team and you buy, sell, trade, or short them on the exchange. So if my favorite team is unfortunately a perennial loser, how can I make money on your exchange? Well, actually, um, that's the great part of it. So if you bought shares in your favorite team, they may have a horrible season. That's Mm -hmm. true. But if you bought $100 worth of shares on your team, uh, and at the end of the season, they they were not doing that well, but you still own all the shares. You didn't lose any money off of it. Your shares may have dipped in value based upon the market, but at the end of the season, and uh, while the season is over, you still own all those shares. So a lot of things might occur while there are no games. For example, there might be a new stadium purchased or a new coach is brought on or the draft picks for that team are occurring and they're getting a great opportunity to have new players, which means the marketplace is now responding to that. So your shares uh, can go up based upon performance and also based upon how the market looks at it. On the flip side, um, if you just hold on to your shares as the market grows, then they increase in value until they have to do a split. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you bought $1,000 worth of shares of Apple in 1987 and you didn't do anything with them, you mm-hmm. just sat. I I think that's worth two hundred and sixteen thousand dollars now. So it there is uh it is more an investment as opposed to a bet. So you're saying you you can buy and hold that there is a long term investment strategy here if you so choose. Absolutely, uh, that's the fantastic thing about it is we've been operating uh, what is a um, learning market and a pilot market. The the learning market's been the last four years. And we started with a $100 million market cap uh, valuation on, on, on the entire capitalization of the exchange. Over the last four years, uh, we hit a $2.7 billion market cap in February. And this is on the learning market, which specifically is like monopoly money. Mm-hmm. If you go to allsportsmarket.com and you sign up, you get $2,500 learning capital mm-hmm. so that you can understand how to interact with the market. So it costs you nothing to learn and to uh, understand the process. Mm-hmm. but what we've seen is, although we right now only have 7,700 sports traders in 93 countries, wow. um, yeah, it's, it's exciting. What we've noticed is that people love this. So even though it's a learning market, they value these shares on a, a personal and emotional level, as well as their, cons, uh, their understanding of the teams. So it's something that you hold on to, and literally, you own in perpetuity. Even if the team uh, moves cities or changes their names, Mm -hmm. your shares travel with them. So these 7,700-ish folks you have uh, trading live on the platform, they're doing that with real money, right? Not the monopoly money. No, the vast majority of them are on the learning market as opposed to the – so the pilot market is for a cap of $2,500 real cash per year. Mm -hmm. But I'd say we have about 1,000 sports traders operating with real currency. Uh, right now, the way the exchange is uh, formed is that it's a 501c3 for real money. That way, we could get up and running, uh, working as a nonprofit, 
so we could sh- show how the data model works mm-hmm. that we can then turn it around and bring in the SEC regulation as well as talking to the leagues. Yeah, I know that you've been talking to, to regulators for some time now. How is that going and any sort of timeline as to when you might be able to really have this be an open market? Well, it's going great. Um, our whole our whole campaign has been about transparency. As you're well aware with Daily Fantasy Sports, they used a loophole in the gaming laws or a doggy door in the gaming laws for uh, f- uh, fantasy sports. And then they basically ran a herd of buffalo uh, <laughs> through the doggy door. And it had a very uh, negative effect on the teams and, and the, how many people are actually watching games. So what we've been looking at doing is we've been in conversations with the SEC for the last two years. Um, and uh, we're now about 45 days away from um, filing our Form 1 with the SEC to register as a national securities exchange. Oh, that's exciting. Congratulations. Yeah. So Thank you. I mean, the, the whole idea that the Supreme Court recently now said, you know what, it's up to the states to legalize gambling in, in their state. What is that uh, sports gambling, I should say, in, in their state? What does that do, if anything, to your business model? Well, I mean, it opens up a conversation on, on a national scale. State by state, people are going to have to decide what they want to bring into their into their lives. Because, you know, during the earlier conversation that you had about a gaming addiction and digital addiction, uh, and these issues are being addressed uh, very vocally, but now we're talking about bringing in something called gambling, which is known to have a very highly addictive aspect and a lot of downside. And the negative aspects is not just having someone sit at the dinner table staring at their phone as per digital addiction. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that they're losing their money and that affects their lives and their families and their jobs. And then that ends up being a burden on the rest of society and ends up creating, well, just to use cinema as a reference, everybody knows Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. You remember what Back to the Future had, uh, 2 had, which was Biff's Pleasure Palace. Uh, <laughs> and you know it's kind of a dystopian reality. And mm-hmm. look, I, I know that the only way that people have interacted money and sports for like the last 10,000 years right. has been gambling. And I understand that. I'm compassionate to that. But just because something was always done doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. And we have somebody in the United States of America who just sent a rocket to Mars with a car strapped to the front of it. Mm-hmm. So I believe that we are supposed to be at the forefront of making change and coming up with better ideas. Yeah, you refer to Mr. Elon Musk. Um, yes, ma'am, I do. So tell me about, I want to go back to how this works. So if, if my team wins and I own shares in this team and they win, am I right in saying that I get paid a dividend and I still hold the stock? Yes, ma'am. Um, so you get paid out uh, dividends from the losing team's dividend reserve. And so that happens for every time your uh, team wins and you get paid out dividends at the end of every quarter of the year on all your teams. So you're never going to you're not going to put buy 100 shares worth of the team and all of a sudden make a million dollars. I mean, that is mm-hmm. the fallacy of the of, you know, of gambling in the first place. Right. But what you are going to do is you're going to make dividends. You're also going to uh, your shares are going to rise. You're going to accrue value. For example, the Eagles last year before they won this, uh, the Super Bowl, they started off at roughly $4.17 a share. Huh. At the end of the season, they were at $15 a share. Nice. So they climbed very well. And at the same time, the Patriots started off at roughly 13 went up to 15 dipped down to 14 and came back up to 15 huh. because 
the the loyalty of the teams uh, of the fans. Of the fans, and, sure. Yeah, and the thing that's exciting is, like I said, we have we have sports traders in ninety three countries, not just the United States. Mm-hmm. And what it shows is that there are people all over the world who love American sports and want to be involved in it, and that brings money into the country. That brings tax dollars into the United States of America without it having a side effect of homelessness, addiction, uh, families being destroyed by gambling. It doesn't have that problem. Well, now you have the World Cup going to be coming here uh, yes, in ma'am. a few years. Is, is that on your agenda to, to be able to have people invest in, in that as well? Oh, absolutely. The goal is to have um, every sport around the world so that people have the opportunity to invest in their own sports. And that's that's the thing that I, excites me about this the most, is it's a brand new economic engine that's never existed before in mankind, in the history of mankind. And being able to turn that engine on and have it start ge- generating revenue and opportunity in this country and there, uh, in other countries is a fantastic opportunity to, to re-resuscitate the middle class. Because the difference is, if you start, if you spoke to a child about the stock market, mm-hmm. um, they're going to fall asleep or just hate you because it sounds boring. <laughs> but if you ask the child, hey, buddy, who's your favorite team? They probably tell you they might have a jersey. They might want go watch the game with their dad or their grandpa or their mom. Mm-hmm. And now you can buy them uh, shares in the learning market. And while you're watching the game, you can show them what's happening with with uh, the shares that you purchased. So at the end of a season, You've created a level of financial literacy mm-hmm. that this child has no idea that they're learning yeah. and they're starting to make better decisions in their future. Well, as Warren Buffett has famously said, invest in what you know. And that sort of yeah. you know, holds on, holds true to that mantra. I'm curious how the global sports financial exchange makes money. So exactly like the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, there is a micro commission taken from every uh, share that is bought, sold, traded. So that's the other thing. You know, the exchange is it does not require you to lose for it to succeed. Mm-hmm. It, it is not vested in you losing. It's not like when you go to Vegas, the house needs you to lose for it to get its cash. Mm-hmm. Um, with an exchange, like New York Stock Exchange, you buy 10,000 shares in Apple. Well, the exchange takes a micro commission for the amount of shares that you purchased. That's exactly how the exchange operates. And then how do you determine uh, the value or price of a share? Well, with a data model, uh, we started off with a $100 million market cap, and that was setting a pretty much um, homogenous value to all the different shares and all the different teams, not based upon uh, a market concept, but based upon it's a start off. So the people who actually create the the value is the market itself. So if you you were talking to me about your team that you love, but unfortunately they don't do that well, but you love them. Mm -hmm. So you may have bought the shares at, let's say $2 and you have a thousand shares. Mm -hmm. Now I turn on and say, well, I'd like to buy those shares from you for for $1.45. And you say, no, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to sell them to you for $1.45. Okay, $2. You know what? No. I've had them for a year. I love them, and I think they're going to do great. Mm-hmm. What about three dollars? No, I'll sell them to you for four. You say, and I go, um, I'll give you three seventy-five. We and if you accept that, we just set the price. That's how the market works. Um, okay, now I'm curious which 
how you actually get the money to pay the dividends. I mean, where, how are you, where's that money coming from, Zach? So um, when someone buys shares, let's say you bought shares in your favorite team, uh, a percentage of the purchase. So part of the commission, right? So right now there's a higher commission value because we have a limited market. We've only got 7,700 people. Okay. So um, when you have more, you take less. Uh, so say there's you buy a hundred shares from the market and uh, from me, and there's a dollar co- comes from your side and a dollar comes from my side. That's two dollars. Fifty percent of that goes to um, go, it goes twenty five percent go to the leagues, twenty five percent goes to the uh, to the exchange, and then another fifty percent of it goes towards um, the dividend reserve. Mm-hmm. So that gets put in the dividend reserve every single time people buy shares. They it, picks up the dividend reserve, raises it, and that's where the dividends get paid from. Okay. So what's a typical dividend? Are we talking like pennies on the dollar or how much can I can I make here? It's pennies on the dollar. It's mm-hmm. pennies on the dollar and it's it's done not so that you're going to uh, you know, strike it rich and buy a house in the next 30 <laughs> right. seconds, but the idea that you have um, you have the bells ringing in your head that something actually worked out really well. And it's 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 something that uh, people love to to play with. Uh, some people trade solely based upon the dividend reserves, and other people they just enjoy that winning feeling. Right. Um, you mentioned that a portion of the money would go to the to the sports leagues. Have you cut deals with the MLB, NFL, NBA, and so on? No, ma'am, not yet. But we did meet with the president of Major League Baseball uh, eight years ago. He loved the concept and wanted to know more. Uh, when we were farther farther down the road, um, we've got meetings set up um, in the f- near future. I can't go into uh, explicit details about it, but really, our process at this moment is uh, ensuring regulation. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've been working on this uh, on this exchange from inception. The concept is transparency and regulatory compliance, and that way, um, I mean, we want to be another New York Stock Exchange. We want to be something that is equal and good for all, not like daily fantasy sports. Well, so I was going to—I was going to ask, like, how does this engage fans differently than a fantasy sports team? Good, great question. So, um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but once daily, once daily fantasy sports started to really have impact, it was negative on uh, people viewing the games because hmm. they no longer cared about the team. So, if the uh, Patriots are playing the Eagles, and you and you're a daily fantasy sports person. You don't really care about that game. You only care about your players from your quote fantasy team right. that are in that game. So you don't need to watch the game, really. You're just looking for the stats. Mm-hmm. The difference is when you invest in your team on all sports market, you're interested in what the team does. Gotcha. So you're more vested. You have a more vested interest in the actual overall team, and therefore might actually watch the game or you go to the game. Yeah. Right, exactly. And it's also something that, you know, there is gambling has a bad rep for a reason. Mm-hmm. People walk down dark alleyways and, and give money to their bookies and don't brag about it because they lose 90% of the time. And it's something that's frowned upon by society because it weakens society. On the flip side, investing, you can do with your family. You can do with your children. You can be proud of it. And as you say, use that as a learning tool for the, for the as children. A, for, for, and not on just children, but think about this. The, you know, the jargon and terminology that's used around the stock market is, is 
it's it's designed to keep people from knowing what they're they're saying. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying it's done solely on purpose, but you know the language itself isolates individuals. So somebody who looks at their life and thinks, you know, I. I'd never put money in the stock market. I don't understand what those graphs mean. I don't understand what the terminology is. It's not something uh, not something I understand. Mm-hmm. Well, you turn to that person and you go, are you a fan of the Dodgers? Yeah. How? Well, tell me about the 1978 game. Well, they did this, this, and the other thing. So you know your team. Yes, I do. Right. What if you could use that, that knowledge that you already have to understand investing? And it's funny because I, I speak to people all the time, and this concept is so new. And yet one of the things that they tie it into is when I was a kid, I was bad at math or I thought I was bad at math. (laughs) Uh And my mom or my dad, they use basketball or baseball or football statistics to help me understand that I already grasped the meanings behind math. I was just intimidated by the process. If we can remove that barrier Mm -hmm. to access, then everybody can, we can democratize investment to the point where people feel that they have the opportunity to invest. And that's that's how we talked about before, you resuscitate the middle class. Mm-hmm. That's powerful stuff, Zach. Um, Thank I, you. I also know that the exchange is embracing technology because don't you use block blockchain technology at your exchange? We're actually building our own proprietary software uh, blockchain and the concept, the, the basis behind it is transparency and security. I know a lot of people uh, sort of muddle uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain together, but they're they're completely different. And the thing that's great about blockchain is it creates, um, you know, it's a decentralized ledger that cannot be manipulated and always exists. And if if that can be attached to an exchange, then you don't have market manipulation. Or at least you hope you don't. Yeah. I mean, because what goes in, as long as what's going in is good and clean, what comes out is good and clean from, from right. blockchain technology. Uh, talk to me about some of the uh, your your co-founders and 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 some investors, if you can go public with any of these names. Who's who's uh, invested in in your company? Um, our our founders and our investors are all privately held, um, and they've been backing us roughly for about seventeen years. Uh, the company was uh, set up to launch uh, across the country in different brokerages, about three thousand of them. In 2008, and if you recall, oh, we had a, a time little to bit do of that. A, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, timing, timing. Um, so that was when the company pivoted and started moving towards a, um, a cell phone app-based uh, platform. Um, the creators are Chris Robley and Ace Underhill. Um, Ace is one of those guys that you've heard about in the TV show uh, um, Silicon Valley. Sure. He's one of those guys who, when he graduated high school, had already finished uh, two years of college. So, <laughs> yeah, he's one of those. He's, yeah. he's what we call a wonk in the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, just super smart. And then Chris Rabelais, uh was a software engineer. Um, sorry, he had a software company and he was a, a trader. Um, so he want, they both were looking at what was happening with offshore sports gambling. And they saw the damage that it was doing and they were wondering why there wasn't another mechanism for money and sports to interact. And literally it was that Eureka moment where Chris Rabelais was sitting down, um, doing some day trading. He was like, well, why can't we do this with sports? And then the, the light bulb went off over mm-hmm. his head. And then he called up super brain computer man, Ace Underhill. And, uh, they started pounding away on the keyboards and building an entire exchange. 
Now, for people who are hearing your name, Zach Ward, they might go, wait, where does that rings a bell? I mean, because <laughs> they don't they don't have the they can't see you because it's a podcast. But if they right. did, they would see the resemblance, Zach, because you still look a little bit like that. Scott Farkas is in there somewhere. Uh, the yeah. bully from that 1983 holiday classic. We see it every year, A Christmas Story. So how do you go from that and from acting to being the CEO of this company? How does that happen? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Connect what, the dots for us, Zach. That doesn't sound like a natural progression. <laughs> no, Come I have on. to say. Um, so how that occurred is, uh, yes, I'm, I am Scott Farkas. And, and by the way, it's Scott, S-C-U-T. Scott, I, I'm saying Scott. It's Scott, you're right. And I love yeah. that movie. I should know this by now. It, you know, most people get it wrong. It's it's actually a scut is an old Gaelic term for uh, uh, how to say this politely, cow poop. Yeah, so, I got to uh, tell you, you were like your perfect name for you in that movie. You were a yes. scut, you know. Oh, it was. It was a little scut. <laughs> um, so I've been acting. Uh, I've been in the entertainment industry since I was ten years old. I'm 48 now, mm-hmm. and you know the great thing about the entertainment industry is as your passion and uh, inquisitiveness continues, you get to expose yourself to different ideas like writing, directing, producing, editing, all these things that are an extension of the entertainment industry. And so when I started producing films, I worked with Ace Underhill because he was also uh, he's my DP, my director of photography. Mm-hmm. So over the years, I met him in 2011. And over the years working together, this thing would be a conversation. And slowly I got brought in because it just the far-reaching uh, positive impact it can have, not just the United States, but globally, uh, was really inspiring. And yes, I, I love acting. I, I love storytelling and making films in the process. And it's always been my ambition. But ambition is something you do for yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, a mission is something you undertake for the world. And I know that sounds quixotic, but I think that all sports market and a sp- sports stock market that's global could create a massive change in the way that people see investing and the way they make decisions about their lives for a positive benefit. And if I can be part of that, mm-hmm. then it's it's an opportunity I, I was not willing to pass up. You are still acting, though. You still find time to do that? Yeah, yes, yes, I do. Uh, I'm actually doing a TV series right now called Z Nation. Um, it's, a, it's about zombies. Uh-huh. There you go. Naturally. Okay. Keeping it classy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little scut in there. Um, what What is the, um, I just, I have to ask, and I'm sure you've been asked this a bazillion times, but any, I mean, all these years later, when you think back to your time um, making A Christmas Story, sort of what stands out in your mind? Any any particular memories or highlights that you can share? It, it was an amazing experience. Uh, it was shot during the winter in Cleveland, Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, St. Catharines, uh, Ontario, and Toronto, Ontario. And the process for me was, it was the first feature I'd ever done. Um, I got, it basically felt like summer camp, but with a lot of snow. <laughs> and uh, working with uh, Bob Clark, uh, God rest his soul, he was a, a lovely, lovely man and, and really kind. Um, and it was, it was the first time I got to see movie magic. Mm-hmm. And- you know that shot, and when um, you see the shot of the house and the, the tree is all covered in icicles and snow is everywhere. And it's the perfect image of a, a small house right around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. Um, none of that was real because there was no snow in Cleveland. <laughs> so when my mom and I, I was like a little kid, 13 years old, and we walked down the street and every other house has got brown grass and dead trees <laughs> and everything looks barren and depressing. And then this one house is a winter wonderland. 
just done overnight. Just amazing experience. Yeah. Hollywood magic at work. Yeah. Um, do you watch it? I mean, it's on uh, It's it, every year, you know, like, you know, like those marathons. I mean, do you ever just stop and, and fully watch the film again? I, I haven't watched the movie from beginning to end um, probably since 2007 or eight. It was right after Bob was killed. Mm-hmm. And it's a little hard for me because that's that's part of my life. So for me, that's you know, A, I'm 48 and I'm, I was 13 back then. So that's depressing. <laughs> um, and, all, you know, so it is a milestone of my life. Uh, it is a beautiful, beautiful movie. And I say that not with any sense of responsibility towards it, but because of the way it was executed. And like it's like the Shawshank Redemption of Christmas movies. <laughs> Just every scene is beautiful. Um, um, on the flip side, yeah. I do get to enjoy it. I, I do charity fundraisers every year uh, for bully prevention programs and the Boys and Girls Club. Um, and then wherever I go, there's people who come up and they tell me their stories about watching it. And I get to meet great grandfathers and their sons and their sons and the little boy or girl mm-hmm. who has been watching it since they were five and now they're eight. And they, they love this thing. So I get connected to it that way. Why do you think it sort of has this this cult following? What is it about the movie, This the just that 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 point in time when all these people came together and, and sort of made that movie magic? I think it was the honesty of it. Hmm. I mean, there is, and uh, not to be too political, but there's, uh, there everything that we watch for children nowadays is very PC. It's very cute. Mm-hmm. And Christmas Story is not purposefully cute. It's adorable. Absolutely. But those kids are being real kids. It's like the Sandlot, right. you know? Um, and the other thing that Bob Clark did, if you watch the film, uh, he shot it from the perspective of a child. So the camera is only four feet off the ground mm-hmm. and it never looks down on the kids. It's always looking from their position. And I think because it it keeps on telling a story that people can relate to. And, you know, the, the movie is not about getting a BB gun for Christmas. Right. It's about... It's about earning your father's respect. Yeah. No, I think you hit and, it. It's definitely relatable. Um, were, were you friends with the, the other cast members and the other kids in the, in the movie? And do you still keep in touch with them? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I didn't know them before the movie, but they've become my brothers over the last 35 years. That's nice. That's nice. You know, a couple of years ago, I think it was a couple of years ago, I, uh, one of the networks did a live A Christmas Story as a musical. Did you, yeah. Did you have a chance to check that out? I did. And? It was horrible. <laughs> wow, you it didn't mince words horrible. there, Zach, did you? Well, I don't think I need to. I, I think the audience responded mm-hmm. uh, with exactly how they thought about Because I'd seen the the actual musical mm-hmm. on in Kansas City before they went uh, to Broadway. Mm-hmm. And it if you get a chance, the actual musical is amazing. Oh, it is I, fantastic. I've seen it, and it is oh, fantastic. Have? I have seen right? it. Right? Yes. It is. It, oh, I mean, I don't know about you, but I laughed, and I cried, and I was teary-eyed. Absolutely. The way they started with the, uh, him sitting in front of, uh, of a desk, speaking to the microphone, bringing back that 1940s feeling, mm-hmm. and then it opens up. I loved it. Which uh, is why the, I was excited when the network was going to do it. So was I. <laughs> and And then I saw it. I was actually at a charity fundraiser in Toronto Mm -hmm. and I'm in a theater. People have paid money to go see this and I'm going to take pictures with them and we raise money for bully prevention programs. And the thing starts and it it starts with like a 
Katy Perry style song, yeah. which I have nothing against Miss Perry. She's lovely, mm-hmm. but it really doesn't feel very 1942 to me, no. just going out on a limb. And <laughs> it was amazing to watch everybody's face just freeze with one raised eyebrow and expression of, huh? I know. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we're, we're going to keep watching The Real Deal, which is your movie every Christmas. Um, but Thank before I let you go, uh, I want to get back to the Global Sports Financial Exchange because I am curious. I mean, I'm in a house where I have I have three kids, two boys and a girl and my husband. So there's a lot of okay. testosterone happening. We're big New York sports fans. What is the most popular sport on your exchange right now? The most popular sport is Major League Baseball. We really? have had to. Yeah, we've had to do a five to one split on the, on the shares. Um, obviously, it changes based upon what team, what league is playing, basketball, baseball, football, hockey. Um, but because it's an exchange as opposed to like betting, you only bet on a game that's occurring. When, you know, it's, it's uh, the Major League Baseball is not, they're not playing right now. But there's things going on with those players, with the stadiums, with the coaches, mm. or with draft picks, or with the spring training, and people interact on that. So it's literally 365, 24-7. Plus, there are a lot of games when you compare it to other leagues. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a ton of games. A ton of games. Zach Ward, really interesting stuff you're doing there with the Global Sports Financial Exchange. Keep in touch with us. Let us know when you guys get the green light from the SEC, okay? Oh, you'll hear me. I'll be dancing on top of my house. I'll be so happy. (laughs) I'm going to hear you all the way from L.A. here in New York. All right, Zach Ward, (laughs) thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to the Yahoo Finance Presents podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and share this podcast. And remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode.